Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Disastrous History. This week we're going to go back underground, kind of, for another mining episode. This week's episode will cover the Aberfan disaster in Aberfan, Wales, in October of 1966. Now, I want to preface this episode with, Welsh names are hard to pronounce, and I'm going to try my best, but as we all know, sometimes my mouth will not make the right noise that we need for those words. So just bear with me, and know that I really, really, really tried, and I did look up how to pronounce all of these, and I'm doing my best. So, with that, Aberfan is a very small Welsh village on the bank of the River Taff. The village itself sits on the east slope of the Midded Murtha, which, if my my translation is correct, means Martyr Mountain. It was a coal mining town. Literally was nothing more than a couple houses in an inn until August of 1869, when Nixon's Taylor and Company began the process of building the Murtha Vale Colliery. The Murtha Vale Colliery was a coal mine. That's what a coal mine is in the United Kingdom, is a colliery. So, coal mine, colliery, same thing. There were two mines that were put in place at the time in 1869, Murtha Vale No. 1 and Murtha Vale No. 2. Coal began to be produced by the mines by 1875 and continued on from there. So, just real quick before we get too far into this, we need to discuss the layout of this mining operation. The actual coal mines were on the west side of the river. They'd go down into the mine, do their mining thing, bring the coal and rock and debris out, and then ship the coal off to wherever it was going, and place the waste in giant piles that are called tips. Now, these giant piles were on the opposite side of where the actual coal mines were. So, the mining operation was on the west bank. The coal tips were on the east bank behind Aberfan. If you remember back to the Buffalo Creek disaster, you'll recall they used coal mining waste to build dams to help store their coal waste and washing and all that kind of stuff. This is similar. Except instead of building a dam, it's just a giant pile. Like, I'm not kidding. They built a train system that carries the waste to the top of the pile. That train, that train car gets p- picked up by a crane and then dumped down onto the pile. And the waste slides down to wherever it ends up. As you can imagine, treating coal waste as if it's a three-year-old building their first sandcastle is not exactly the best way to deal with it. But that's what they did, and they did it seven times because by 1966, there were seven coal waste tips. Now, it might have been alright if they had done this on flat ground, but as we all know, coal is rarely ever found in areas with flat ground outside of Minecraft. It is always in hilly and mountainous areas, which this area was. Again, minid literally means mountain in Welsh, and that's M-Y-N-Y-D-D, just in case you were curious how um, difficult it is to understand how to pronounce Welsh words. But that's besides the point. And then, with mountains, comes issues with water runoff, underground springs, and just straight-up creeks and streams coming down the side of the mountain. Now, if you think back to the Buffalo Creek disaster, you'll remember that water and coal waste make coal sludge, and that coal sludge has basically zero shear strength. You can see where this is going. You can absolutely see where this is going, right? But we're not there yet. We have a whole lot of incompetence to get through first. In 1874, 
an ordnance survey map was prepared for Murtha Mountain, essentially showing where there were creeks and springs and known waterways. There was a second map made in 1898 and released in 1900, showing the exact same waterways in the exact same place. And then, just for good measure, there was a third map created in 1914 that was published in 1919, showing the exact same location of all the springs and waterways on the mountain area. Three very clear maps indicating where these tips should be located and where they should not be located because, again, everyone that's working with coal knows that coal sludge has very, very little shear strength. So you would think that knowing how unstable coal can be when exposed to water, that the people in charge would want to avoid placing their waste in the same general vicinity of continuous sources of flowing water. But as we know, this wouldn't be an episode if that was what was going to happen. By 1966, Midden had seven tips. Three of those tips were placed directly over various well-known streams and springs through the area. And again, those tips are basically just taking coal waste to the top of a tower and dumping it off into a giant pile. And it's not like they didn't know that this was a possibility. There had been tips that failed and slid in the past. In 1939, just five miles away from Aberfan, a separate tip at a local colliery slid down a hill and moved a full 1,500 feet. 180,000 tons of coal waste moved down a hill, covered the road nearby for 585 feet, and was about 25 feet deep in areas. The slide continued on into the river Taff and literally blocked the entire thing and completely diverted the river. This was a substantial tip failure that caused major disruptions and was a minor miracle that no one was killed or injured, and it caused major problems and was studied extensively because it was a major, major disruption and could have killed many people. And I just want to take this moment to remind you guys that these aren't, like, well-engineered dams. They're not holding anything back. There's nothing special about them. They're literally just piles of whatever came out of the ground. So, like, when you're digging a sandcastle at the beach and you're just trying to dig a hole to see how get deep you can get it so you can get some water that you can make to build the sandcastle and make it more sturdy, That's and you just make a giant pile next to you and eventually you get it tall enough that it starts to slide down the slides and occasionally it'll collapse and all that, that's literally what these are. I... That is the exact same thing. It is the exact same process. They're literally just taking what they dug out of the ground and dumping it in a giant pile that's somewhere away from the hole they just dug in the ground. I, I, wish, <laughs> I wish I had a more scientific explanation for you guys, but it's, it's literally just a pile of dirt. Well, a pile of coal waste and dirt. That's all it is. But anyway, that slide in 1939 had a report written about it that led to a conclusion of what caused that slide. And it was decided that a significant rainfall weakened the structure of the tip and caused it to slide down the hill. Now, that report led to another engineer creating a memo basically describing how future waste tips should be built and placed. So how they should be building them, what height, how much area to take up, that kind of stuff, and where on the mountains or the ground they should put them. These recommendations would have entirely prevented the Aberfan disaster from ever happening. Those limitations were, namely, limit the height of the tip. If it's near property, don't build it over 20 feet tall. 
make drainage under or around the tip so that it's not running through the tip itself, causing it to weaken, and essentially don't make the tip exist over existing water springs or creeks or known areas where there's significant amounts of groundwater. And of course, these recommendations were then followed to a T, always and forever. Except no, they were immediately shoved into a desk, that's not a joke, and promptly forgotten about. The memo was handed to someone and shoved in a desk and then forgotten about until 1965. That is not an exaggeration. No one remembered that it existed until 1965. But anyway, that doesn't mean that tip slides stopped. They didn't even stop at the Murtha Vale Colliery. Remember how I said three of the seven tips were built over water sources? Well, one of them, tip number four, slid in October of 1944. So let's get into this real quick. All of the tips, well, most of the tips at uh, the Murtha Vale Colliery were built slightly differently, depending on what time, when, when they were built. So tip number four was created by a single steel tower in the middle of basically what would become the pile, and waste would be brought up by a winch system from the base of the tip, and then would be deposited by a rotating device that would tip back and forth, placing waste on either side of the tower, making a cone-shaped tip. So the coal would go up the middle, it would tip over on one side, be dumped on the right, and the next would be tipped over and dumped on the left, and then it would rotate all the way around so it made a complete circle, and it would just grow from there, and it would fall down the sides, and it just kept growing up and out. Tip number four location was chosen in 1933 and was put into use that same year. There was absolutely no scouting done on what ground the tip would cover and if it would, could be a problem. As the tip grew, it would indeed end up covering a local stream, which meant that water was continuously running into the tip and saturating it with water at the bottom since no efforts were made to divert the stream around, under, or through the tip. And so, predictably, the tip slid down the mountain about 1,800 feet on October 27th, 1944. You see... The way it works is the water is going down the mountain on the ground, obviously, and these tips are being built up on the side of the mountain. So the water is pushing down into this coal sludge, which is relatively porous, so it's just continuously being fed water. So it's not drying out. It's continuously wet, and that wetness is seeping up further and lowering and lowering the shear strength as the tip gets higher and more weight is put on top of the pile. So the longer you have that tip going, the more water you get into it, the more of it that is going to fail because there's so much weight behind it, it's just going to all go rushing down the hill in a giant avalanche. So after that October 27th, 1944 slide, tip number four would slip again in November of 1944. And then, the company in charge of the mine at the time, Powell Dufferin Company, attempted to create some form of drainage for Tip 4 to prevent it from sliding further, and then they realized that they may as well just give up on Tip 4, and they installed a new tower farther up the mountain that would become Tip 5 that was basically built the same way. The problem was, Tip 5 would also have the same problems because Tip number 5 would also end up covering the exact same stream that tip number four did, just farther up the hillside. All tipping on tip four stopped in 1944, and in 1944, tip number five became the sole weights deposit location. 
And then, in 1946, the coal industry in Great Britain became nationalized. This meant that the National Coal Board was put in charge of literally all coal mines in the United Kingdom. They were in charge of all coal mines, they were all in charge of all tips, all of it. The whole nine yards. This becomes important because when they were put in charge, the National Coal Board was supposed to inspect all of the mines and all of the tips for any potential problems or failures. And as we will come to find out, they would do absolutely none of that as per usual. So, at some point after 1947, a bulge appeared in the bottom of tip number 5. Because of course it did. Tip number 5 has the same main problem as tip number 4 did. Being deposited over an active stream. The literal exact same stream. In 1950, it was said by the National Coal Board Engineers that tip number 5 would only be used for 12 more months and cease deposits in 1951, and they were going to be using a different method of storing leftover coal waste, mainly putting that leftover coal waste in old coal mines. That turned out to not be true, as it would still be used for another 5 years well into 1956. You see, people were complaining about the bulge in tip number 5 and the National Coal Board, Coal Board wanted to get them off their back and continue to do it the way they were doing, so they basically just lied and said, yeah, we're going to stop in 12 months and we'll do it a different way, and even though they had absolutely no intention of ever doing that. And that's why this is matters, because I want you guys to understand that the National Coal Board was not on the up and up in any part of this situation. Basically, from now on, everything they say is mostly a lie or at best an extreme, extreme stretch of whatever truth they want to have. Like I said, they took over all the coal mines and all the tips in 1947. They should have been there to inspect all of them. But all of the members of the NCB, National Coal Board, who would testify after this disaster that had visited the tips had absolutely zero idea that tip number four had slid in 1944 and had no idea that there was a massive bulge in tip number five and that it was also a threat to slide, which would have slid down onto tip number four and then could have caused a chain reaction that would have ended extremely terribly, even though this already ended terribly. And all of this is extra interesting because even after they had decided to continue with tipping at Aberfan, or just had said they were stopping to get people to stop asking about it and stop asking them to stop tipping at Aberfan, the engineer for the borough in Aberfan sent a letter asking if they were going to actually take precautions and inspect any new surface tips that would be used, or at least inspect the ones they were already using. He was told in a letter that there would be preventions taken to prevent either further or future slipping. I say further or future because the investigation in the aftermath of the disaster had contention on which word was actually used in the letter. The investigation says it doesn't matter which word was meant because they wouldn't take any precautions in the future anyway when they were doing tipping. But I contend that it does matter if they used further or if they used future. If the National Coal Board used the phrase to prevent further slipping, that means that someone at the NCB knew that slips had occurred in the vicinity of Aberfan and would therefore hold some knowledge that what would happen in 1966 was at least possible. 
So they would have to have known, because if they're saying we're going to prevent further slipping, that means they know that tip number four slid, and they know that tip number five at least was getting ready to slide or had already slid partially. That, that means that they knew. If they use to prevent future slipping, they still get somewhat of an error of plausible deniability, but not like a ton, because how are you supposed to prevent a thing that you don't know can happen if they don't know that slipping is a possibility? If they're not conceding that slipping is a possibility, why would they need to prevent it in the future? So my personal opinion is that they meant further slipping, and they entirely knew that tip number four had slid and tip number five was getting ready to slide because it was very obvious even to the layperson that could see the tips let alone an actual trained engineer that those had moved from where they were supposed to be like when you're building a giant sandcastle at the beach and you're just building a giant pile to dig a hole you can see when the sand slides down and takes out a giant chunk there's a giant sheer face it's the same thing that happens with the tippings in coal waste. It's a giant shear face. There's a whole chunk that's further down than the rest of the pile. So, like, if they went, which they did, they would know, and therefore they were basically saying they wanted to prevent further sliding. They, they didn't take any of those precautions, but that that's the whole thing. And that was a big, long tangent that basically shows that the National Coal Board knew there was a problem and could have done something about it and elected to not. And even further on from that, to give further credence to the fact that they knew that something was going on at the tips at Aberfan was tipping at number five stopped in 1956. Now, the NCB claims it was because the tip had caught on fire. So they claimed that there was a fire burning on tip number five, and that's why they stopped dumping on it. The town had been complaining about the smell of the burning pile for months, but not in 1956. The first time the town complained about the smell of the fire was fully two years after tipping stopped in number five in 1958, which means that the tipping wasn't stopped because of the fire. The tipping on number five was stopped for some other reason probably because the bottom of the pile had begun to actually slowly flow downhill, and if they added any more to it, they would it would also have slipped just like tip number four had. And I am here to contend that NCB knew that they had a problem. They knew there were slip risks on both of these piles. They just didn't want to deal with it because that would cost money. So they made up the lie about the pile being on fire and decided on a new place to dump coal waste which, predictably, was tip number six. And then tip number six was quickly abandoned because it was encroaching on a privately held land, and farmers are nothing if not know precisely, precisely where their lot lines start and end. And the farmer did not like having that coal waste on his land. So now we finally get to the tip in question that caused this disaster. Tip number seven. Now, I realize I've said the word tip a lot in this episode, and it probably stopped sounding like a real word a long time ago, and I'm sorry, but there's only so many ways to say giant pile of coal waste. But anyway, two men chose the location of tip number seven in 1958, and that was that. They were Ronald N. Lewis, who was the manager of the colliery, and Joseph Baker, who was a mechanical engineer. They did no investigation of what was in the area. They took no precautions for drainage, 
They did absolutely nothing. Just said, all right, dump it here. I am not kidding when I tell you. The day they set out to find the new location of tip number seven after being forced to stop dumping at tip number six, they did not take a map with them at all of any kind. Like, as I said earlier, there were three different maps showing where all of the locations of springs, underground springs, underground seepages, creeks, all of that were all over this mountain, and they didn't take any of them. But it's not like they could have missed the streams and springs in the area. Several witnesses stated that literally anyone just walking up the mountainside on a leisurely country stroll would have seen the streams and springs and all that. Like, it was so obvious that there was a significant amount of water in this area that children would build little pools in the ground at the base of the mountain in the area where Tip 7 would eventually sit and swim and splash and play in them. The men working on the tip would get drinking water from springs that came out from below where Tip 7 would sit. There was no need for specialized civil engineering. They just needed to use their eyeballs. The evidence for all the water was there. They, they didn't even need the map. They could have used it. Probably would have been a good idea. But they didn't need to. But they didn't want to either. They just ignored all of that. And the other issue was, it was the only available spot and was super close to the now abandoned tip number six. So they wouldn't have to move all the equipment very far at all. And if you don't have to move it very far, that means it's not very expensive. Because... They can't do mining if they don't have anywhere to dump the waste. So all of the time that the tips are down means no mining. If you don't have to move this stuff very far, that means it's only down a day or two rather than a week or whatever. It was cheap, it was easy, and it was a ton of available area to create a tip so they wouldn't have to think about it again for several more years. Easy peasy, slap it down, let's dump some coal. You'll note that all of this violates several of the recommendations from that 1939 memo, namely install drainage and don't cover up existing waterways. But there's another thing they ignored. Keep it to a reasonable size. Multiple individuals testified they had absolutely no plan on where to end the tipping for number 7. What this in effect meant was that the tipping for tip number 7 would eventually cover the material that had slipped away from tip number 4 in 1944. And it's always a good idea to just build over a previous failure point, staring straight at you, South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club, and your sorry excuse for a dam. But they ignored all that and started tipping in 1958 at tip number 7 and didn't stop. And tipping, I if, just want to make sure everyone's clear on what tipping is, is basically just dumping the refuse from the coal mine onto this pile. It's called tipping because they're tipping it over and dumping it there. Humans are not a very creative lot when they name things. So that brings us to a new issue that was occurring in Aberfan. Aberfan was regularly flooding. Now, before the tips were in place, Aberfan regularly got somewhat of a flood because Wales gets a ton of rain. But it was nothing compared to what would happen after the tips were installed. For years before the disaster, those living along the Pontglass area of Aberfan had complained of frequent, frequent flooding that was frequently two feet deep and would leave a black, sticky residue and was very clearly being caused by the change in natural drainage off the mountain by the tips. These complaints were frequently brought up to the National Coal Board and they were essentially always ignored. 
Now, what exactly caused these floods is most likely because of the way the water was running off and around the tips, was creating it so that it was funneling it into a single area rather than across an entire drainage point to, and was overwhelming the uh, drainage into the river Taff. This flooding showed a major problem on the hill in that there was a ton of water constantly sitting on the hill, which meant there was a ton of water in the base of all of the tips, especially tip number seven on Midden Merla. And the townspeople knew that this was a problem. The danger of tip seven was well known to those in Aberfan. From the middle of 1963, right up until the day of the disaster, residents and government workers in Aberfan complained, warned, yelled, and pointed out the danger to the National Coal Board of that tip sliding down onto the town. And they were frequently met with, well, if it does slide, it won't reach the town because there's a banking there. And that banking was literally just a flat piece of land so that if, yeah, it wasn't a banking, it wasn't even a thing that would have stopped it, obviously. But they were essentially ignored. And there was a kind of a threat there that if they continued to complain about it, then the National Coal Board would shut down the coal mine, which would essentially kill the town because the coal mine was the vast majority of the jobs for men in the town. You lose the coal mine, everyone goes out of work, the town dies. So they made some complaints, but they didn't make too much noise out of fear of reprisal. Oh, and one more issue, just because we haven't thrown enough on this pile already. <laughs> they started to dump what are called tailings on the actual pile. Now, these tailings are super fine particles of coal dust that's left over after the coal has been washed, and they are notoriously unstable. It is essentially jelly. It's not, there's no strength to it all. At numerous times during 1963, complaints were lodged about the tailings being included in the disposal at tip number seven, but nothing stopped them. It just continued on. Eventually, they would stop in about 1965, but for a good while, it was just, they just continued to dump tailings on it despite numerous complaints. And just so we cover all the bases here, they have broken all of the rules put forth in that 1939 memorandum. Because the tip in 1963 was well over 20 feet high, and it was absolutely over springs and creeks, and there was absolutely no drainage whatsoever, and it was relatively close to a single uh, cottage nearby on the mountain. So, yeah, this was a disaster waiting to happen. Then, in November of 1963, we have some foreshadowing. At about 6.45 a.m. one morning in November, one of the tip workers was in Aberfan and heard a roaring jet engine noise. When he got to the top of tip number seven, several yards of the tip had moved about three quarters of the way down the tip and had moved several hundred feet away from the base of the pile. It basically created a huge hole right in the middle of the top of the pile. The National Coal Board refused to acknowledge that this slip had happened, saying there was no hole in the top of the tip, and that the photographs showing a hole were creating a false impression. They wouldn't even admit that it was part of some naturally occurring thing like the landscape. So, in the actual uh, 
investigation, one of the members of the National Coal Board was asked point blank. So if this wasn't a part of a slide on tip number seven, then it must be a hole created by some kind of naturally occurring depression in the ground there or something like that. And the guy replied, no, it was not a hole. There's no hole there. You're, it, it doesn't exist. Just flat out denial. He was literally given an out and didn't take it. Just flat out denied there was a hole there entirely. So after this slip, the bottom of the mountain became even more saturated with water. A nearby cottage used a stream for water in their house. That was covered up after the 63 slip. Sheep would frequently get stuck in the sludge and have to be pulled out by ropes. Kids playing on the mountain had to create bridges out of planks and ropes to move across the sludge. It was very clearly a problem. And the town folk continued their pleas that something was wrong, that they were in danger, that something needed to be done. Several letters specifically mentioned that if Tip 7 slid too far, it would take out the local junior school and the senior school. And all of those letters were ignored by the National Coal Board. So that finally brings us to 1966. In the months leading up to October of 1966, the top of Tip 7 frequently settled down into holes that were approximately 10 feet deep and two witnesses estimated that the bottom portion of the pile moved 20 to 30 feet further down the mountain by referencing it to a dead tree known locally as Hangman's Tree. Everyone involved denied ever knowing that the pile was sinking that much, saying that it very obviously would have merited investigation of why had they actually been told it was happening, but of course they totally weren't told that the tip was regularly sinking to a depth of 10 feet, and they had no idea what they were talking about, and if they did know about it, they would have done something to prevent it, which smells like a whole lot of bullcrap. So that brings us to the morning of Friday, October 21st, 1966. It was a normal morning, wet and foggy, but relatively normal. It had been raining for the past several days extremely heavily all over Aberfan. Workers arrived at the top of the 111-foot-tall tip in the morning around 7.30 a.m. to find some bad news. Some of the 300,000 cubic yards of waste in tip number 7 had begun to slide. They immediately called off adding more to the tip. The top of the pile had dropped some 20 feet and had taken part of the rails which made up the track that brought the... Uh, buckets up for the crane to tip over had taken some of that rail with it and well they knew that was an extremely bad sign the workers sent one guy down the mountain to report it to their supervisors because the phone cable from the mountaintop to the actual mine had been stolen again was apparently regularly getting stolen so they were just sending a messenger the messenger that they sent was instructed by the supervisors to tell the workers on top of the mountain to pull the crane back away from the edge and wait for further instructions. In a bit of absolutely stereotypical United Kingdomness, they decided to sit down and have a cup of tea before moving the crane, which ended up being good for them, because at about 9.15, the crane operator was looking down in the tip, described what he saw as such. I was standing on the edge of the depression. I was looking down into it, and what I saw, I couldn't believe my eyes. It was starting to come back up. It started to rise slowly at first. I still did not believe it. I thought I was seeing things. Then it rose up after pretty fast at a tremendous speed. 
Then it sort of came up out of the depression and turned itself into a wave down towards the mountain, towards Aberfan village, into the mist. Meanwhile, down in the village, life went about as normal. It was Friday, of course, and it was only a half day for all the students in the town. The following week was the half-term holiday, where the students would get an entire week off school. There were two schools in the Pantglas area of Aberfan, the junior school for the younger kids and the senior school for the older kids. The younger kids' classes started at 9, and the older kids' classes started at 9.30. Howard Rees was a student at the senior school. He was walking to school that morning about 9.15, excited for the upcoming holiday, and saw some of his classmates up in the distance, hanging out, joking around, waiting for school to start. As he's walking along, all of a sudden he heard a loud roar like a jet engine up close. He looked up and observed a black wall of death heading directly for the town. In it, he could see boulders and trees and bits of houses. It was taller than the town and was moving at lightning speed. In an instant, he watched it destroy the outer ring of homes and then engulf the two schools. He then watched as the massive wave crashed down upon his three classmates sitting on the wall, killing them instantly. He would run away and manage to hide behind a wall as getting peppered by debris from the massive wave of coal sludge. Howard Rees would end up surviving, hiding behind that wall. Jeff Edwards, meanwhile, was a student at the junior school. Sitting in his classroom, he was only eight years old at the time and was waiting for class to start. He got up about 9 a.m. and walked over to pick up a library book from the windowsill, then headed back to his desk. His teacher was getting ready to start a math lesson, and that's when the school kind of shuddered. Lights flickered, the walls shook, Everything seemed to be vibrating, and then all of a sudden there was a loud roaring noise. It got louder and louder and louder, and then all of a sudden, he blacked out. He woke up sometime later with his foot stuck in the classroom radiator, leaking all over him. And he was surrounded by darkness. Above him, he could see a light, but his desk was jammed into his stomach in such a way that he couldn't move. Trying to take stock of his surroundings, Jeff realized something was very, very wrong besides the fact that he was now buried in his school. Sitting on his shoulder was his classmate's head, the head of a little girl, and that little girl was dead. All around him, he could hear his classmates screaming, crying, sobbing, and gurgling in pain. But as he lay there for nearly 90 minutes, the sounds started to fade as one by one his classmates and teacher died around him. For 90 minutes he sat there alone in the muck and debris, stuck staring at his one hope for safety, knowing that what could happen to him was literally sitting on his shoulder. Eventually Jeff would be found. Firefighters would have to chop up the desk jammed into him to get him out. He was the last person to be pulled out of the debris alive around 11 a.m. David Davies was also in the school. He was also pulled out of the school alive, but was originally thought to be dead and was placed in the same area as the other victims until someone noticed that his leg was moving and pulled him out. Gaynor Magic was in a class when her teacher was starting a math lesson. She started to hear a noise and was terrified because it was extremely loud. And then it got louder and louder and louder. So she made a split-second decision, make a break for it. She sprinted towards the door, but wouldn't make it. The black wall of death 
burst through the window and sent her careening back the way she came. She then became unconscious. When she woke up, she was trapped. One of the radiators in the classroom was sitting on top of her, but it had saved her from suffocating under the debris, but it was now looking to be her tomb. She could see black coal waste everywhere, but also the bodies of her classmates. An arm was slung over her from somewhere nearby. She pinched the arm to see if there were movement, but there wasn't. Whoever it was, was dead. In the end, Gaynor Magic would be saved from that pile, but her brother and sister would both die in neighboring classrooms. Gerald Kerwin was sitting in his classroom waiting for class to start, as were the rest of them. The boy that normally sat next to him wasn't in school that day, so Gerald's best friend came and sat next to him. The next thing Gerald knew, the wave of coal slurry smashed through the wall and buried him up to his chest, pinned to a nearby wall. His friend was laying with his head on Gerald's shoulder, and he tried to get his attention, but then he realized that blood was pouring from his friend's mouth, and he was unmoving. He knew that his friend was dead right next to him. Above Gerald, a girl was walking around on top of the remains of the school. She saw him and realized that he was still alive and said she would go get help. Unbeknownst to Gerald, though, that little girl was so panicked, she ran straight home instead of telling anyone he was alive there. Which, honestly, who can blame her? That's a lot of pressure to be put on an eight-year-old who just watched dozens of her classmates die. Eventually, Gerald would be pulled out. Jeff, David, Gaynor, and Gerald were four of only ten students to be pulled alive from the school after the disaster who were in the buried classrooms. And you'll note that none of the names of the students who died near them are mentioned. That's because those who were pulled from the rubble have decided to not reveal the names of those who died near them out of respect for the parents of those children. In a different area of the school, Karen Thomas was headed to pay dinner lady Nancy Williams her money for dinner, like lunch here in the United States, it was basically the main meal, with four other students when the glass on the opposite end of the hall shattered and the wall of sludge was headed right for them. Nancy yelled at the students to fall to the ground, and then Nancy leapt on top of all of them and used her body to shield the children from death. That tidal wave washed over them, and Nancy successfully shielded all five children from losing their lives. After it had calmed down, the kids screamed at Nancy to get a response, and even went so far as to pull her hair, hoping to get some kind of response. But Nancy had died. Nancy sacrificed her own life and saved five children, and for that, she is absolutely inducted into the Disastrous History Badass Hall of Fame. In one of the other classrooms, David Bainon found himself with 34 students and that oncoming black mass of coal sludge, trees, boulders, and whatever else it had picked up. Thinking quickly, David, their teacher, grabbed the five closest children to him and squeezed them tight against the chalkboard, using his own body to shield them from the avalanche. Despite David's heroism, all 34 students and David would die in his classrooms. When they were dug out, firefighters found David's body up against the chalkboard with the students entirely shielded. It was just unfortunately not enough to save them. He is also absolutely inducted into the Disastrous History Badass Hall of Fame. 
Pauline Evans was 27 years old at the time and immediately ran to the school as soon as she heard what happened. Pauline spent the majority of that day climbing through half-buried windows because how small she was and helped carry well over a dozen children from their half-collapsed classroom out into safety. But there was one child that Pauline could not forget. When she was inside helping pull children out of the class classroom, she could hear one little girl off in the distance calling out for help. Pauline knew that if they moved the debris too quickly, they could kill the little girl before they could get to her and anyone else that was still alive underneath the pile. Unfortunately, it would take too much time to dig them out, and that little girl would not make it out alive. That was the one that stuck with Pauline forever, despite the fact that she saved well over a dozen children from a terrible, terrible fate. The first people to respond to the disaster were the mothers. Many were nearby, having just dropped their kids off, or were in the process of dropping off their older children to the senior school. After the massive wave came through, mothers threw caution to the wind and began to dig barehanded at the rapidly resolidifying coal waste. They were literally tearing their skin off in an attempt to get to their children. Sadly, much of it would be in vain. The next level of responders were the coal miners from up in the colliery. Many of them would arrive just 20 minutes after the disaster and would throw themselves on the pile because most of them had children in the school. In the end, 144 people would die in the disaster. 116 of them were children, with 109 of those dying inside Pantglass Junior School. No one was found alive after 11 a.m., just less than two hours after the disaster had occurred. From October 21st to November 4th, nearby Bethania Chapel was used as a makeshift mortuary for identification of the bodies. Many of these children's bodies were horrifically mutilated, and it would take days upon days for parents to be able to find their child. They would have to go through pockets of clothes to find candy or jewelry or toys or anything like that to be able to identify their child. And because of how many children there were and how many bodies they needed to identify, there was barely any room in the chapel. So parents would have to go in one by one to lift up the bed sheets, hoping beyond hope that somehow, some way, their child was not under any of those sheets in that church. And just thinking about that, having to look at child after child after child that died in this disaster and not knowing if the one you just looked at was actually your kid or your neighbor's kid or your sibling's kid, your niece or nephew, that would be one of the most difficult things I think I could possibly imagine. All of those tiny children that died horrifically. In the end, no one would be held responsible for the disaster. Now, that's not entirely true. The investigation would find that the National Coal Board was entirely responsible for the disaster, but there wouldn't actually be any punishments in the response to the disaster. No one was fined. No one was charged with anything. There weren't any resignations. No one was fired. Just absolutely nothing. In fact... There was a drive set up in the aftermath that raised 1.75 million 
pounds for the victims of the Arafan disaster. And, um, well, that was horribly mismanaged. You see, the town wanted the tips taken down after the disaster for, you know, very obvious reasons. And the National Coal Board said, we're not doing that. They're safe, which is laughable considering everything that I just talked about. So they ended up making a deal that they would pay for part of the removal of the tips and the fund for the victims of the disaster would also pay for part of the removal of the tips, which is utterly ridiculous. Also, the fund was set up to give money to victims of the disaster. Now, the original offer for each child that was lost was 50 pounds. Reminder that it raised 1.75 million pounds. They offered the parents 50 pounds for each child. In one of the more ridiculous outcomes of this uh, charitable fund, in massive quotations, uh, they were allegedly saying that they would only give payouts to parents after they were examined to ascertain whether the parents had been close to their children and were thus likely to be suffering mentally after their child died in this disaster. Which is, you know, uh, cold on a way that I cannot adequately put into words. I cannot imagine having to be uh, interviewed after my child has just died to determine whether I should get paid a fund that was donated specifically for me and making sure that I was actually close to my child and whether I was suffering mentally or not. That is utterly ridiculous. In one small part that I would be remiss not to talk about because it was a part of a major Netflix television show, uh, the queen waited eight days to go to the disaster because she didn't want to distract from what was happening, and uh, she calls it the greatest regret of her life. There is now a memorial garden in place in Aberfan in remembrance of all those who lost their lives in the disaster at Aberfan. And we have reached the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History, Disastrous spelled without the vowels in history, and TikTok, Disastrous History, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I appreciate you guys always following along with this podcast. I hope you guys enjoy it. Let me know what you think. Let me know if you have any disasters you want me to cover. And as always, stay safe and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.